You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Hola, hola, hola. Welcome to the One Small Bite Podcast. We are back. We are bringing you anti-diet conversations and topics that are going to chop diet culture in its tracks. So what? So you can build a positive relationship with food, make peace with your body, and yes, learn to live fully. I'm your host, David Orozco, certified intuitive eating, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and my practice is Orozco Nutrition, located in Atlanta, Georgia, in the U.S. I have an incredible team of health at every size and weight-inclusive informed and trained registered dietitian, nutritionist, and therapists where we focus on that anti-diet and compassionate approach to help you break free from the shackles of diet culture and weight stigma. Are you ready? Let's get started. Today, I have an amazing show for you today with my special guest, registered dietitian nutritionist, Grace Wong. I will talk to you about her in just a minute, and I will let you know that we've got a great topic today, but before we get started, I wanted to just say, did you enjoy the recast episodes in September? Did you enjoy Maria Scrementi and Erica Malk? Angie Dye, Tiffany Thoen, and my favorite was Dr. Wanda Williams. That was just fantastic because you know what? It really gets us ready for the holiday season. So if you're listening to this podcast, to this episode in the present moment when it's aired, which is going to be October 6, 2021, we are gearing up for the holiday season. We've got Halloween coming up. We've got Thanksgiving. Then, of course, there are the Christmas holidays and New Year's. And so this time of year, it's usually hustle and bustle, super stress, lots of get-togethers and family reunions and lots of food, lots of sweets, lots of desserts. And it's the time of year that some people are just like, oh, they dread it. And some people are super excited about it. But you know what? I love the fall, and this is a great time to start working on what we can do to start paying attention to one small thing that you can get started for this holiday season. It might be something that is very simple, like very just pausing or paying attention to how you're feeling and letting yourself take a moment to separate, you know observe that feeling. Why are you feeling tired? Why are you feeling stressed? Why are you feeling sad or depressed or frustrated? Maybe it's important because it can inform you of something else. And usually this is what really happens with a lot of the work that I do with many of the clients that 
I work with, the people that I work with. And so I wanted to tell you that I took that time off in September to finish up my editing of the book. You know, this has been a labor of love that has been coming out for a long time. And I just wanted to give you a little insight. The book should come out January, maybe early February. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. But I wanted to start talking to you about the heroes and sheroes that are in the book because that's what the book is about. The book is essentially a journey of the hero and the shero to hear the transformation in their life because they did that. They took one small bite. They just really focused in on one thing and they really did four really important steps that really helped them develop what they needed to transform in their life. And, and, and I'm not talking about losing weight. And I'm not talking about um, uh, improving their blood sugars or um, getting rid of their blood pressure medications. Yes, those things probably happened for some of these sheroes and heroes. But what was really, really important was other strong indicators of feeling better, sleeping more, having more energy. That's probably the number one problem or question that I get from a lot of people I work with. Hey, David, how do I get more energy? How do I improve my energy and my mood in the day? Or how do I get a better pep in my step? Well, this is where I'm getting at, folks. This is where the book is really helping us see that the way they did it is through these four C's. What do I mean by that? Here it is curiosity, compassion, commitment, and consistency. And so just like one of my sheroes in the book, Jeff. Now, let, let, let me just add something really, really important. When I used these sheroes and heroes, these are actual stories of real people but I did change a lot in their lives. I changed their names and I changed their specifics and, and I altered where they work and what they do because, you know, I do want to be uh, conscious of their privacy, of people's privacy. And so, but quite honestly, they are also a compilation of different clients that have very, very similar challenges. So what I did was I, I created these images. And so Jeff was a person who had very picky eating challenges. I mean, he would only eat certain foods and the vast majority of them was fast foods. Not that fast foods are bad and I'm not going to demonize or vilify certain fast foods or you know high fat foods or high sugar foods or anything like that. That's not where I'm going with this. But he had a very strong fear with food. That started in his youth. It started when he was a very young man. Uh, his mother was a single parent taking care of him and his grandmother who had lung cancer. And he was always looking at and exposed to a lot of the foods that his grandmother had to consume because she was on chemotherapy and she had a lot of medications and a lot of challenges. So this is why I bring you this episode today, because it really highlights a lot of what happens in men 
in in my experience, what I see in men and their eating behaviors, a lot of it stems from their youth. A lot of it stems from things that they're not even aware of. Maybe the abuses of what, or what we call ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, or maybe it occurs because of childhood emotional neglect, which is definitely the case with Jeff. In this situation, he was pretty much on his own. He was an only child, and his mother was working really hard, and his grandmother took care of him, but you know, she also had to take care of herself, and she had her illness, and he witnessed a lot of these foods. So he developed a, a strong aversion to these foods, these fear of foods where He'd, he'd almost feel like he would vomit or he would get these regurgitations or he was afraid that he'd have these reactions to foods or these allergies at, at times. So he really found a specific number of foods and he really stuck with that. So this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring on my next guest, Grace Wan. She is a registered dietitian in Canada, specializes in feeding and eating disorders. She has been practicing as a dietitian for over 17 years, primarily in eating disorders, pediatrics, and mental health. She works with clients of all ages, though, living with feeding and eating disorders through a de developmental lens. She is experienced in working with coexisting conditions, conditions such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, aut autism spectrum disorders, sensory-based challenges, complex medical conditions, addictions, and trauma. Besides her clinical practice, she provides training and supervision for professionals in Canada and overseas. She has written and developed various professional guidelines and papers on ARFID. Grace is currently working with a group of multidisciplinary colleagues in developing the Responsive Feeding Therapy Framework, which you'll hear her talk about in this interview, and, and resources to that uh, to support this therapy approach. So again, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is because like Jeff, I do often see this condition, especially with... Um, uh, this eating disorder, I should say, with several people that I work with. And, you know, I often see a lot of picky eating. I, I just wanted to say something very important. Just because someone has a picky eating or is a picky eater um, pattern, I, I don't, I don't want to say that they have an eating disorder. You know, there are a lot more criteria that you'll hear in this, but you know, it is important to listen to this, especially for us guys, you know, it starts in our childhood and it could easily develop into something worse as adults. But the problem is us guys, we don't really seek medical care that often. We seek, we don't seek mental health that often. So therefore, I just wanted to put this out there because I thought it was really, really important. Again, especially that we're heading into the holiday season. So, and you know, again, if you're listening to this in the future, I just think that it's still very relevant because it, it, it really highlights, again, some of the fears that we have uh, food from food and where that come from comes from. So, Pay attention. I think you're going to get a lot of great information about the various subtypes of ARFID, such as restrictive, avoidant, or aversive. You'll also hear a lot of the therapeutic approaches that really aren't standardized, but are very, very important. Uh, the way that Grace 
puts it together. So, you know, she's just really super brilliant with all of this. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that you will really get a good amount of information from this. So stay tuned, listen in, and uh, one last thing I do want to remind you, stay tuned. I will have more episodes about the various sections of the One Small Bite book that, again, should be coming out January 2022 or early February 2022. So stay tuned. I also want to let you know that we will have a sign-up sheet. I am looking to put together a launch group. So if you're interested in that, look at our website. Go to orozconutrition.com slash book. Again, orozconutrition.com slash book. And um, bear with me. I will have a sign-up sheet to have you be part of the launch group. I'm looking for people to help review the book. I'm looking for people to give me some insight on what their thoughts of the book are and you know, just really start hyping up some great, um, uh, well, some good community around not just the book, but again, what it means and how we work at One Small Bite. So, with that said, I want to remind you, go ahead and visit our website, orozconutrition.com, and I do apologize, there was a little bit of a hiccup and delay in getting that website up during September, but it's up, it's ready to go, so check it out, and definitely keep your eye on more information. I'll be posting more on social media, which I will say I had to take a little bit of a break in the last year because whew, sometimes social media can really get a little intense. But getting back on there, and again, we're developing this launch group, so I'm really excited. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with this episode. Here we go. Hi, Grace. Welcome to the One Small Bite Podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. Great. Thank you. I'm so pleased and honored to have you on the show. I'm really excited to talk about our subject today, which is ARFID, which stands for Avoiding Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And it is something that I've been wanting to talk to someone who really knows their stuff. And I came across you from a colleague and from a presentation that you've done. And so I said, oh, goodness, I've got to got, <laughs> I have to have Grace on here. Actually, I had Whitney Trotter on and she told me, I said, I need to get someone who is an ARFID specialist. And she said, oh, I need to talk to Grace. So here you are. <laughs> but before Thank I get you. started, Grace, I would love for everybody to get a little bit of your background, maybe a little bit of your history, kind of just tell them a little bit about you, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Hi there. Um, my name is Grace Wong. I'm a dietitian in Canada. I live in Calgary, Alberta, and I work with um, children and actually uh, humans of all ages. So I work with from um, infants to children to adolescents and adults. And I also work with um, uh, later uh, people later in life with all sorts of eating and feeding challenges. And um, it is a very interesting area. And I started out as an eating disorder dietitian. I practice in eating disorder. And how I started working with ARFID is through my eating disorder work, I started um, getting to know some families, their eating challenges are, do not fit like anorexia or bulimia, what we usually um, 
connect with eating disorders. And, and they um, initially, I, I, I find these cases quite perplexing. And so I started learning more and more about them. So that's sort of how I uh, get into um, uh, child feeding work. And as I do more work in the area, then I actually started working with people who have grown up with these eating challenges. So they become, you know, adolescent teenagers and adults. So then I started to go back to working with the adults in this area. So, um, however, you know, going back to your point, David, I don't know if I can really claim to be a specialist. I think there's still so much unknown for us to learn as we learn more and more about how our body and our nervous system and our mind um, work together in interesting ways. I think we still have a lot to learn about ARFID. Yeah, ARFID is pretty complex. And I think you really hit the nail on the head. The complexity is both in the treatment in uh, the individual as well. Their lives could be pretty complex and a lot of things going on and things happening. And so, um, so let's back up a little bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of ARFID? How did it come about and uh, how did it become an actual diagnosis? Yeah. So if we actually look at the literature, we know for a long time, uh, it's well documented that there are different, um, actually, I would say the literature focused more on the younger children, um, infants, children, even school age children with eating challenges that we cannot quite explain. So it's documented that these children eat very few foods or have almost uh, like a very aversive reactions to eating. But at one point, we did not know where to put them. So at one point, they're, they're, they're not in the DSM. They just kind of um, are there. And uh, we will see these case studies in literature back in the 70s and 80s. And there are different theories. Um, at one point, people thought this is mostly um, related to emotion. So at one point, there's a diagnosis called food avoidance, um, F, um, no, FAF, food avoidant emotional disorder, where we think this is mostly emotion. And then at some point, people have other just sort of different um, different ways of interpreting. But what, what I would say the one theme that from all of these is we know this is just, this is beyond just physiology. We know that this is more than just physiology. People have wondered, is it related to relationship? Is it um, because of uh, both of behavioral and a physical component? And so that's what I would say it's not, um, was not agreed upon for a really, really long time. And people did not know what to do with these. So when when children or family present with these eating challenges, it might be um, not able to eat. It might be very small appetite. It might be children just not growing. So at one point, people just put them all in this category, failure to thrive if they're underweight, until um, this last um, DSM-5, there is a, a momentum or energy to really wanting to do more research to understand um, these challenges more. And also we know they are older, like, like they're adults. So there's not, we don't just see these in children. So the DSM-5 um, created this separate category under eating disorder. Um, actually now, you know, we, are, we don't have just eating disorder, it's feeding and eating disorder in the DSM. So under um, the DSM-5 feeding and eating disorder, we have different categories where 
anorexia bulimia, where we usually connect with eating disorder, it's categorized under, but we also have other conditions such as ARCID, um, rumination, and a, and a couple other um, eating challenges. And it's meant to be um, more uh, encompassing. So we don't go to say, oh, this is not you know, a disorder because it doesn't show up in DSM. Hopefully um, the intention is we capture, we hear more of these stories. So we will we will know better over time how do we work with these families. Um, but the tricky thing is we don't really have when when this diagnosis was first put on put in the DSM, it doesn't come with a clear um, prescription or a suggestion of what do we do. So then there was a problem. We have a diagnosis. We recognize this is a concern, but there's no straightforward treatment. And I would say that's still, we're still, we have moved forward, but that's still very much the case. That's a really good point. I, I do want to back up a little bit and just let everybody know what DSM stands for. DSM stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And eating disorder is a categorized as a mental disorder, which is really interesting because I, I, it bugs me quite a bit <laughs> because as dietitians, we're not really allowed to diagnose an eating disorder. Uh, physicians, psychologists, therapists can, which frustrates me because eating disorders, it's in our wheelhouse. I mean, we're registered dietitian nutritionist. And so eating is what we do. Food is what we do. And then, so the other part about that, that, that disturbs me a little bit too, is that the DSM-5 also is um, giving us some criteria too, that are a little bit vague um, with, uh, like you said a little while ago, well, what do we do from the treatment standpoint? Let's first talk a little bit about um, what actually happens. What happens in RFID? What happens with the individual? What's going on? Why are they restricting or avoiding food? And then let's go then to the actual treatment part, which is interesting because I think to tie back to the DSM-5, I think that sometimes the diagnosis, there's a lot of things in the diagnosis that are a little bit tricky as well. So yeah, let's start there if you don't mind. Yes, oh, absolutely. And and I hear you and I agree with you that um, it is in our wheelhouse that we, because we have the experience or skill sets to ask questions and really tease out those parts. Um, we can look at a person's weight. We can look at how many types of food they're eating. We can do those check boxes to say, does this person eat a very diet or not? However, where how we differentiate why eating is difficult for this person, the nuances, the reasons behind it, everything that we do not see, if we go back to a, let's say an iceberg analogy, like the DSM really focused on the, the tip of the iceberg, what we can see, but what's underneath, we don't see that. And, and quite often it's us, you know, we have those, um, uh, we ask questions, we we are curious about how did the eating become difficult? And there's so much to tease out. That is the that story behind um, why eating is challenging is actually it helps us to differentiate. For example, if you have someone who is um, malnourished, how do we know this is in uh, a restrictive eating disorder like anorexia, or it is uh, because of, let's say, a selective eating where it fits more like an RFID? 
So quite often it's understanding the development for children, that development of their eating. Um, in the DSM right now, they there is three broad categories, but I would say that that's probably not um, that's good, not that's not complete yet. But if for 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 information, um, these are some of the common ones that we see. The first one, I'd say, the most common one is that we hear is um, limited diet. Those who eat a very small repertoire of food, very limited variety. Um, sometimes um, you hear language that people like to use um, and use like problem feeders, selective eaters. Um, and quite often we see a connection between that and sensory um, experiences. Uh, some people have um, um, just processed sensory information differently. So that could be taste, textures, um, color, um, or even sounds. So we may not think about sounds attached to eating. But for example, if you're eating something crunchy, that crunches, we hear it through, you know, actually through our body, um, through our bones and, and through our ears. Um, when we're sitting down with a group of people, when people are talking or the ambience noise for kids who are eating lunch at school, these all impact actually the sensory integration. We do not just smell and eat when we eat. Actually, all the sensory information, um, if I am sitting, uh, my I am getting sensory input from the chair, uh, is my foot on the floor, am I grounded? All these requires a lot of integration. So for some, uh, for some individuals, um, these experiences are process differently. Uh, for example, maybe taste and texture um, are very, what I call very loud to our brain. So if I have a taste of a certain food, it might be, it may register and I find it okay. But for a different person, the same taste may trigger a much bigger reaction. It may register differently. So the food is actually very different. It may be too much or too, maybe too spicy or, or almost just become intolerable. So that's one type that we quite often see. And that's uh, often tied to um, sensory experience. But then within that, there's also more nuances. Sometimes it's, it's a sensory experience, but then it might get complicated and worsened by, by other things. Um, and then another type that we see sometimes, it's um, the very low appetite. And go along with what I was saying earlier, we what we describe as low appetite, but what we do not look at is the history or of the person. So is it low appetite because um, this person is depressed? Is it because they have a lot of stress on board? Uh, or uh, because maybe eating happens um, difficult for a long time? I've worked with some um, children where they, they might have been um, on the tube. They required um, food tube feeding at an early age. Um, but they, they, after they, they no longer require the tube feeding, the transition from tube to solids had been very, very stressful. Then they actually associate eating with pain or associate eating with, uh, with stress. So then their appetite might have actually compromised because of that stressful experience. So again, um, we, we say low appetite as a broad category, but within that, actually, if we look at children who present with low appetite, we might find a thousand different stories and a thousand different children. And then there's a third type, what we call a, a, aversive experience with food. Right now, what's often talked about and recognized is actually um, almost like um, a worried about vomiting, worried about choking. But I would say, again, just this is just our current DSM, but I would say there are 
um, children who present with that sort of aversion may not be related to vomiting or, or choking or swallowing. It could be related to um, to other other aversive experience. So I I, I hope um, that the DSM will continue to evolve. But that's also my other my my other pet peeve is actually um, let's not get too attached. Like I I feel it's good to have the label. It's good to have the the diagnosis as a guide. I know before DSM have ARFID as a diagnosis. Lots of kids who present to their physician's office, they've been told that this is a phase, you, they'll grow out of it, There's, they don't need to be concerned. And, and a lot of families have been brushed off by healthcare providers because there's no um, recognized um, diagnosis to describe this. So in having a diagnosis, I think it helps people to seek help and service. Um, however, I do feel like what we know, um, what is written on paper right now is very limited. It, there, we're definitely missing um, lots of people who, who are struggling with eating. Is there a body image associated also with ARFID? Interesting that you asked. Um, that's not part of typically what we talk about. I would say yes, though. It actually comes up very often. Mm -hmm. It's not part of the uh, of the diagnosis, but yeah. things that I hear um, uh, are actually come from all spectrum. I a lot of. Um, children or actually adults too, they grow up because eating, because of their low appetite, they may, they are malnourished and they're in a very small body. So a lot of um, people have been um, rewarding them, them, telling them that they're a great, they're in a great body or they're so lucky or their genes or right. Yes. Or even they've been told that they're too skinny. I have, um, mm. I have had boy clients that they, they don't want to go swimming with their friends because um, they, they are much smaller. Uh, I have had um, kids in hockey who feel like, you know, they're too small in, in, you know, in the locker room or that out in, in a sports like hockey where um, there's a lot of um, body contact, they feel like they're too small and they're just not, you know, strong enough. Uh, so, so that could, you know, that could impact on a person's development, their social, you know, their social identity, their, um, you know, their involvement in just normal, um, let's say extracurricular activities. Um, though um, they're also a subset of um, people who eat, who have these eating challenges, but they may, they are in large bodies. So this is very interesting. Um, they are not usually talked about. They're not really in the DSM. I know, I know we have, as a professional community, we're becoming more aware that people eat limited food can be in a large bodies. And the tricky with the tricky things that what, what, what I've seen is a lot of these clients blame themselves they will blame themselves for not eating good enough because I don't like vegetables because I do not eat a healthy enough diet because I eat quote unquote junk food. That's why my body is large. So, so besides the body shaming that we see, uh, it's, it's this coupling of food shaming and body shaming and that um, owning or feeling like I have done this to myself. It's even stronger than, than some of my clients who are in large bodies, but they may eat a more like more variety of food. They like it's, they don't have that extra layer of food shaming. Mm, that's very interesting. I can totally see how a lot of men might actually have ARFID and may not even be aware of it. And yes. That's just not something when it comes to food, that's just not something that we even look at with, with boys or men. Is that right? Yes. You know, very interesting. You mentioned this. I've had a couple um, men clients seeking help and 
usually the reason is um, number one, it's weight loss uh, because they felt like, you know, um, that their, their, their body's too big and they feel like maybe they should learn to eat healthier so that they can change their body. Um, a second common reason it's because eating no longer work for them. Like quite often I get adult men when they come, it's because my wife thinks I, I need to eat differently, or um, I want to be able to eat, you know, to do this socially. And I'm not able to, usually it's for, for a partner reason. So um, I know we, we, we may chat more about it. This is the difference between, I find between adults and, and children, um, the reason for children to come and look for service and uh, reason for adults to look for service are very different. That's that's fascinating. Let's talk a, a little bit about, I want to get back to men in a minute, but there was, you said so many things that I had, well, I got, I got to ask her that question. So um, you had talked about the three different types, the limited diet, low appetite, and the adverse, aversive type. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about each, but um, before I do, what happens to an individual, just generally speaking, that they have these things, they have these issues where their diet is limited because of food problems or food types or uh, selective eating? What happens in their lives? When you said about their history, I had a lot of images. I mean, I have cl- clients that have RFID, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. Yeah. I would say this is, um, I, I really like to um, get them, they, I believe history is very important in understanding a person's food journey. And whenever I work with a new client and get that journey, I get a many different stories. So it's everyone's journey is so truly so unique, even though there are some um, uh, some themes that will come out. So one of the com- a common themes that I hear, so there's a group that I, I often run into is children who might uh, actually had what I call would be like a rocky start in feeding. Like it could be uh, parents would report like we've had challenges feeding this child since they are a babies or when they are toddlers for whatever reason it could be because they have reflux actually reflux is a very common one I hear from parents uh, or infant like just that infant feeding become really challenging so eating just have always been always been difficult so parents have a hard time transitioning even from a formula or breastfeeding to solids and then and then just got like harder and harder from there. Just children who are, who don't show a lot of interest in trying new foods. And I would say um, for these children, quite often, a change of language. It's not that they are they do not add new foods or they don't eat new foods. They their process of adding new foods it really needs to be much longer. Um, I talk about there's a, there's a process of how we develop food acceptance going from. I don't know, this is a food. Okay, I have no relationship with this food to I, I will eat this food. There is a process of food acceptance. And all of us takes different length of time. Some of us are like foodies. We look at food, interested. I want to try this. And some of us are very conservative. Some children are very conservative. So they take a lot of tries. And particularly foods that are what we claim to be quote unquote healthy, protein foods, meats, vegetables. These foods are very challenging uh, from a sensory perspective. Like if I have to like, let's say I, I use an example, grapes, every grape that you and I eat will have the different taste and texture. It depends on how ripe they are and just all these variety, right? Or a melon. So really for these foods are very challenging for, for some people. So they might, you know, we hear, oh, you need to expose children to food eight to 10 times. For these children, they might need to try it 
for 40, 50 times or even longer to, to, to accept these foods. But then to a parent, they will think like, oh, you know, my child is not eating. So what happens in that story is that is um, some parents feel pressure because they hear it's so important to feed our children um, this many servings of vegetables that these foods are healthy. So they get really worried about my child is not eating healthy enough. And then a dynamic starts evolving between parent and child, but parents trying to um, either coax or entice them or use different ways or sometimes pressure to get the child to eat. But if a food is not safe or it's not comfortable, it's not acceptable for a child yet, they will resist. So then we we start, you know, putting um, parents and children in, you know, in the two side and they're fighting with each other. And that can actually evolve into a lot of stress. And then eating can get become more and more um, stressful from there on. So I would say this is a common one that I hear for maybe different reasons. Um, I talked about sensory, but sometimes it can be a complex um, medical condition. Uh, I've worked with some children because they have um, different diagnoses. It could be a heart condition uh, that they they have different development trajectory. They need to be always um, going to appointments. They could not, let's say, practice tummy time like other children can. So the development is different, which impacted on their eating. So these rocky start can also change eating. Any complex medical conditions will impact a child or infant's eating. But then without that background information, if parents are not informed, they don't know. And quite often, I would say a lot of um, these children, they, they, they may know that um, things are hard or things are different, but they might not even prep that eating will be different. So then the eating then again spiral from there. And, and I could go back to that sort of language of aversive experience. If eating had been stressful all your life, then eating by nature isn't it's aversive. That's fascinating. So let me see if I understand what I heard or maybe if I could interpret probably you tell me if I'm getting it right, but there's probably a genetic component there. A child or an infant may have a little bit longer of a transitioning period that's required or uh, trying new things. Even as they grow older, they just genetically might have a predisposition to need more time. Doesn't mean that they won't do it, which is what I thought Uh, I heard with the type of eaters would be adventurous type eaters versus more conservative type eaters. Then I heard that there's also where the parents are, their influences. It it struck me because I had a client not so long ago whose nine-year-old son uh, was also had very limited foods. And I kept trying to approach her by or telling her, you know, you've got to just let him eat. He just may take a long time to try one food or another. And if all he likes are uh, biscuits or chicken fingers, then just keep adding something new or something different and just keep little by little adding it over time. The more he sees it, the more he's exposed. So the parental type of situation that's going on, then there's medical conditions that could also be happening. I want to also ask you about something else. I wonder if this could add to the rocky start or the conditions that occur. Could it also be um, inherited trauma from parents and sort of life history of the parents that pass into the genetic coding or into that inherited type trauma as, a, as an infant? And then therefore, too, I love what Brene Brown says, 
um, genes are the bullets and the environment is the trigger. And so um, is it our parents, our, is life sort of triggering that from happening? Like, for example, anxiety or stress. I, I think I'm saying a lot there, but do you follow where I'm going? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I would roughly put it into kind of what I call a um, a biological vulnerability. So that could be genetics. Oh, that's good. Um, okay. For example, some children who are who may have a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder or autism spectrum disorder, like we know these conditions, people are going to be maybe more sensitive. Uh, so, so there there is a biological vulnerabilities and the mm-hmm. bi- biological vulnerabilities could also be a medical condition. So mm-hmm. I, I would broadly put that together, there could be a biological vulnerability. However, what happens with the environment? So this is the very same, you know, conversation we have around nature nurture with many other conditions too is, so this nature might may, may somewhat set this person's trajectory a certain way. And then there is the nurture, the environment. How do we provide a rich and supportive um, nurturing environment to support the development? If it's not compatible, then it can it can get you know really it can it can make uh, make um, the outcome really difficult. And it's not even about whether the 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 environment or the nurturing. It's not about even right or wrong. It's just sometimes it's about why 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 use the word compatible. Uh, for example, if I and this this is another family that I a t- type of family I've met a few times. I have worked with a few parents. They're foodies. They love foods. They're so adventurous with food. But their child has a very limited palate. That is very hard for this parent. Maybe in in a family, if the parent had more appreciation. So I've worked with some families where the dad may say, yeah, actually, I was like that too. And I'm now okay as an adult. This family might understand a child a little bit more. And we may be able to find ways to support this child more compatible naturally. Versus, let's say, um, parents or foodies who may really have a hard time understanding why you only eat the few types of food and you don't get tired of it. For some children, they find eating the same pattern very soothing and very supportive. And particularly in times of stress, they will hang on to their, what we call this, the, maybe the limited types of safe foods. And that may be really hard for some parents to understand. So it's it's about finding um, that finding that compatibility. How do we support children in, in that development process? Yeah, finding that that I mean almost goes into treatment. But I, before we get there, because that's that's a big one, I want to talk a little bit more about something you hinted at, and I thought, oh, let me get back to that. You talked about the parents feeling the pressure. Can you talk a little bit more about that, and then let's go ahead and transition afterwards to um, the treatment approaches, and then the challenges there, and then other areas about marginalized populations. But let's talk a little bit first there, because I think it could be a good transition. The, the parents feeling this pressure, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? What are you talking about there? Um, that's an interesting question. Maybe it, can I can I ask you a question, David? Have yeah. you ever feel pressured as a parent to do certain things and you feel like you can or you don't do a good enough job? Oh, all, all the time. Yes. Especially as a parent too. It's like, am I doing the right thing? Oh no. Society says I'm supposed to do it this way. And it's, there's like no manual for parenting, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I can, I mean, I can share like right now, you know, we're still where I am. We're still at some, have some level of COVID. And so we're not going out as much. Mm-hmm. So one thing I know I, my parent guilt is 
am I providing enough stimulation for my children? You know, so so I'm I have in my head about expectations, what children need, so that they they are stimulated, they're learning and growing and everything. And I'm thinking I'm not providing that, right? So that's my parent guilt. <laughs> so I share that. So hopefully, you know, if your audience, if you're hearing this as a parent, you can relate that. Um, and we have the parent guilt around food too. We hear so many messages around what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to provide to us, how many grams of protein and superfoods. If you go to um, Instagram to follow some, maybe some um, mom influencer or parent influencer, sometimes you will see these Instagram worthy meals or um cute looking bento boxes. So we have expectations that to be a good parent, this is what we have to do. Our children needs to eat lots of fruits and vegetables. They need to love fruits and vegetables. When our children are not inclined to do that, then we're stuck in between. So, so that's the pressure I'm, I'm talking about that, you know, we feel pressure that is our job to make our children or to support our children to like these foods when they are picky uh, or, you know, um, or when they're selective, somehow we feel like we have a part in it, or maybe I did not do a good enough job. That's why my child doesn't eat vegetables or broccoli, mushroom, whatever it is. That's so interesting. It does make me think about men and boys again and and thinking about how they could be essentially stuck with, you know, five or six different foods for almost their entire life uh, in some instances. Um, And I think that there's a difference there. Parents having pressures. Do you see the pressures differently on girls than they are with boys? Or is it about the same? Is there really no difference there? I, I would say I haven't noticed a difference between the, the attitudes from, uh, from parents towards boys and girls. However, um, we have like very consistent um, statistics that show um, the presentation like this type of when we look at the limited eating that show up more frequently in boys and that's actually also what mm-hmm. I have found I have more boys clients who show up with Arvid than than female I definitely do have female clients but um my uh, I would say um my teens and younger clients tend to be more male than female but interestingly I have more female adult clients seeking help than, than, than male clients, which I'm still intrigued about. Um, I have found a lot of my adult clients will come and because they're saying, you know, I can't make this work. This is stressful. I really want some help. But for my clients who are men, they usually are motivated by something's not working in their life. They don't usually will come and see for help because they just want to seek help. Quite often it's because um, there it, it's, it's kind of pinching on something like, let's say like, um, relationship it's quite common that actually uh that they uh, uh men come to uh, for help because of relationship yeah that's that's so true <laughs> or something's wrong with their sex drive or something right that's another one um mm-hmm. but um you that's so interesting i love what you said there that you tend to have more arfid in boys and but the adults or adolescents are more women do you think that that has a lot more to do with men seeking care or the lack thereof? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely, I definitely think so. And, and I mean, I, myself it, it, as a female, I, I cannot really speak to knowing what that lived experience is like, but from my observation, definitely, I, I think there are uh, men tend to, you know, less likely to seek help, particularly around food and eating. I think it's, 
for somehow maybe I don't know if you can speak to it, David. Like it seems to be more like a women issue. So I don't see men seeking help for this, or they want to be more straightforward. And um, well, yeah. yeah, that that's what I want. That's why I wanted to tie in a little bit of those pressures. I think that you know the pressures that parents have and the way they treat girls in the house versus boys. And who knows how it might be with other uh, non-binary, right? With kids mm-hmm. who might be transitioning or who may be asexual, who we just don't realize that. And then what that guilt, that parent pressure is that then that child develops some kind of aversion or some kind of fear or some kind of reaction to a certain food. And it's so incredibly strong it's very, very difficult to manage past past that in many regards. A lot of times because people don't even know that those two are even connected. But I, you know, it's interesting because I wonder if if you're not seeing all of those those boys that might have ARFID, that what happens as they turn into adults? And because we're not seeing a lot of men seeking care as often. And definitely as a physician or a health professional, you probably don't associate an eating disorder at all, much less ARFID in men. So then, boy, I can really see how that is missed quite a bit. Um, I do want to get back, though, because I, I think to tie to, to the, the not just the journey and the parent's experience here, but also in that treatment, I think, you know, talking about that parent food guilt and pressure I think it's very important to also talk about then with adequate level of care. I think that with ARFID, it's very difficult because I don't think that there is a standard treatment approach for ARFID, is there? No, and I'm sorry, David, actually, I just, as you talk about it, I, I, there was something quite important missing that I want to make sure I don't forget. Okay, good. Um, so sorry, I just, uh, as you talk about, there is a group of um, children that actually have a really rocky start with eating and feeding that I actually meet quite often as adults. And this is something important. I don't want them to, to be missed because I don't think they talk, get talked a lot about. I work with some um, adults and when they actually reflected back on their childhood eating experience, it is very traumatic. Um, mm. It could be high conflict divorce. It could be um, alcohol in the family. Uh, it could be um, various reasons. Actually, I know we talked about, we want to talk about marginalized community. It I was just be- thinking the same thing, being yeah, like, Latinx. Yeah, I can really associate with Immigration that. process, mm-hmm. refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be any sort of trauma, but really make eating very difficult. Like let's say in, um, if there's alcohol involved, like if eating is a lot of yelling and anger at every meal, um, some people describe, I just want to shove food in my face and, and then I want to be away or eating. It's always coupled with uh, with stress. Like if you are constantly in a stressful environment, imagine how much um, stress your gut take on. So I just kind of figured I, I, I don't want to miss this because I don't think we hear enough about this group. And these are people that I find I tend to meet them in adults. I wonder because they, mm. they may not access service when they're younger and we've forget that just when we're, when our lives are stressful, eating is just like, it, 
it shuts down um, our appetite. So um, yeah, I I just I as you talked about that, I I I, I remember um, uh, a few uh, of my clients that I've met with in their adulthood where they work really hard to to really um, do well in life through therapy, through through working through various things like depression and anxiety, but eating is still stressful. So these are people that they, they, they will, they will come in and, and seek help and say that, you know, um, I don't know why I can't eat and, and they just want help. So. Yeah, no, I love that you opened that. I want to go down that road so badly too. Let's just do it. Um, marginalized populations. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head. I think just because I'm Latin, I want to say Venezuela just off the top of my head. So I think of the tyrannical government in Venezuela, and I think of the people that are trying desperately to get out of the country. I mean, they they have fleed all over South America. Colombia has swollen with a lot of uh, Venezuelan refugees, Peru, Bolivia, all of South America, Mexico, and then the United States. And gosh, the trauma and the challenges that I can see then you have all of these Central American countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico, uh, that also have gang wars and corrupt governments and, and moving and migrating to the United States or to Mexico or South America. And so you're seeing this incredible challenge and trauma, not to mention everything that we've had with covid and everything that we also had um, with um, other countries around the world, the Middle East. And oh, gosh, I think about all of that trauma and you've got all of these margin. Now they come to the United States, you know, land of the dream. Right. And well, it's not happening. I, I remember someone I was talking to one of my buddies the other day and, and I was saying, oh, this was just yesterday. I was uh, doing a nice bike ride and I was saying, you know, it's interesting. My father had a law degree, but when he came to the United States, we struggled significantly because he had five mouths, well, six mouths to feed. And he worked at warehouses as a security guard. He worked and tried just really to uh, get by and and survive the amount of trauma and also being Latin, we're very passionate and we're very verbose and we talk very loud. The decibel level is extremely loud growing up. I can see a lot of that that trauma really affecting uh, a way, especially if you have again that biological component where I'm going to transition slowly from one food to another. Oh boy, that can really be a, a challenge there, couldn't it? Yes. And you imagine like imagine when you talk about some of these people trying to flee their country. Imagine you have a child growing and you're trying to feed a child during all these changes. And even um, so for people who have access to immigration, right, like not everyone have access to immigration from those countries. For those who are they probably a better off families, they have more resources, but still it is a very stressful like you shared. When you go to another country, the family go through profound stress. The first few years of immigration, I, I've gone through immigration myself and I I, I know people who, who, who are immigrants. Um, it is a very, it's not easy to resettle. And um, and um, there's, there's a one family I work with actually, um, the child actually has a diagnosis. He actually um, has a developmental condition that was, that actually will start present like probably started to present itself in in a few like maybe i think when he was like two to three so 
Again, some of these developmental concerns, there is no medical test. Like it's not like we can do a blood test, right? So it's sometimes observed behaviors. When children are growing through these changes, these well, behaviors may get missed, right? And, and you're talking about people moving from towns to towns. Um, a lot of the times people may settle in one place to the next place. And think about when you're not in your home, you don't have control of your kitchen. We talk about set routines for families. There's no set routines in those lives, right? When you are couch serving because uh, someone else, it's kind enough to offer a place that you can stay so you don't have to pay for rent. So you would, you would say, yes, of course, but it might be really difficult to actually to set up environment that optimize your child's eating in that environment because you don't want to bother people. So there's all these very um, little pieces that, that makes it really hard. And in that family that I just mentioned, um, he, his diagnosis was not clear initially because, you know, people were just stressed and they were like, oh, maybe this is just a child, you know, adjusting. It was until years later that they they, they settled and they're like, maybe we still need to get this child, get, give this child diagnosis, right? So um, the process of immigration and, and moving around or um, um, for, for refugees and some families, um, actually, I work with a, a, a mother who was pregnant through that process. Imagine we talked about that biological genetics, like who knows what happens that all that stress does, you know, how that stress impact that pregnancy. So if there is any biological vulnerabilities, um, is it possible that's related to the extreme stress that's, you know, when you're fleeing um, war zone? Um, and then we get into um, the impact of trauma. I work with mothers who've been through the war zone who have, who is not, um, who has struggled with the baby's crying. So this is a mother who was successfully um, parented a few older children, but could not tolerate the crying of this baby. And we had wondered, is it because of the trauma through the war zone? So crying elicited a big anxiety response, right? So, so right when they are new to the country, we're wondering about access to healthcare. Uh, we're wondering about, you know, even, even if they have access to healthcare, do they have money for transportation to healthcare? So to get the, the support they need, even though on paper it may be available, um, it may not really practically be available. And even if they have access to a provider, do providers um, have enough of an understanding that's giving a suggestion that makes sense to them? Uh, in, in, in child feeding and family feeding work, it comes up all the time where um, providers may recommend what we call kind of standard recommendations. For example, do not play with, uh, do not let, uh, let, let, let children play with food. Do not, do not stop them. Do not stop them. But in some cultures, that's a no-no, right? So maybe even for a mother to go back home to tell her husband, or um, if they're living with grandparents, it's okay to let the child to play with food. Does the mother have that kind of role to speak up um, to advocate for the child in this culture. In some culture, that might not be okay for the mother to speak up like that. And so if we prescribe these, these um, or suggest these things, uh, you know, is, is, is that culturally sensitive, right? So there is, that is another um, layer. So absolutely, I would say um, marginalized um, populations um, in some, in some different unique, different unique situation, um, even getting the attention, getting, you know, knowing that there's a challenge, knowing that they need help is a challenge. And even by the time they get help, um, do we really have um, accessible help that makes sense to them? That's very good. There's so many things that I want to go there. 
I do want to get back to uh, more or other marginalized populations and then treatment, of course. Um, so a few questions here, if you don't mind. Number one, with other marginalized populations, you mentioned something that's very important. You said that some people can present in a large body and have ARFID, but you know, ARFID is avoidant restrictive. That means literally you're avoiding food or you're restricting food. So, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm going to play make believe. Mm-hmm. How can they become in or how can they be in a large body if they're avoiding food? Can you talk a little bit about that? And then also, what would it, even that question actually mean? What's the hidden point behind that question? It's like large body. Is there something wrong with that? Let's go there if you don't mind. Yeah, well, th- I mean, that 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 shows, you know, uh, a very bi- like a very common bias that we have is yeah. body size has to do with the way we eat, right? But we know bodies come in all sizes. So body size may not have anything to do with um, the their what they're eating that could be their their natural um genetic predisposition but we infer that right so we have people in large bodies who eat a good variety of foods and who make good nutritious food who take a lot of care in eating and then we also have people who are more casual around it who eat limited uh, variety of foods so so it it doesn't mean that someone in large body necessarily that they're eating um, contribute to um, to their body size. And but h- however, that is that is a very common misconception and quite common. I actually I do know that for a fact is children and even adults do sometimes they are sent to. I, I'm saying this in air quotes, um, um, weight management program um, to learn to eat more fruit, uh, vegetables, to learn to eat healthier, to want to learn to eat. Bro- they were told that they need to eat more vegetables because um, because they're they're again, quote unquote, overweight. Just to make sure in the DSM five, they don't state anything about the criteria being weight, do they? <laughs> So actually one of the criteria is underweight. So, so it is, so it is biased towards those in the small body. So there are, there are several different ways to qualify for this diagnosis and being underweight is quote unquote underweight. is one of them. Mm. Um, There are other, I would say there are other ways to qualify for it. For example, you know, have limited food repertoire, like a nutrient, nutrient deficiency, um, a psychosocial, you know, uh, like a disturbance. There are other ways to, um, to qualify even without the weight uh, criteria being met. However, I would say often we have providers bias when we we will be just clouded by what we see and do not go there and think about that, you know, that being actually uh, this person could actually have, let's say maybe um, uh, uh, um, a condition that limit the amount of food that they eat. And just because they, they are um, in larger body and we know it's common, you know, from let's say uh, the implicit bias test, we associate negative things with people in large bodies. So it's easy to conclude that they are making a choice or they are making poor choices. That's why their body is in, they, they have a large body. Yeah. And that, that goes not just to um, immigration or migrants coming from other countries. That could be people from that very country that are in a lower socioeconomic, lower education environment where they don't have access to healthcare. They don't have access to 
food or there is food insecurity and you know you're making as a parent decisions very difficult decisions on whether you're going to feed someone or you're going to need money to pay for the gas to get in the car to get to work so you can have money and you know what I'll let my kids eat at school uh there's so much more there that's involved too so that then to me, I, I want to let's look a little bit at the treatment here. Um, let's go again. I asked you this question just to reiterate it. it is there an actual treatment for ARFID? Yeah, um, I would say there is no standard ways to like this is one way. I mean, having said that, I, 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 I don't believe there is anything, there's any condition that we should have one standard textbook way to treat anything. Um, so I think that's not actually necessarily a bad thing that right now there is no one, what we call the gold standard. Um, a lot of, uh, there, there is a narrative that we don't know what to do. Like quite often we'll hear people say, oh, you know, we just sort of don't know, really know. We don't have one well-researched ways. And I think, again, that it's because we're very, um, we're used to um, relying on research. Um, but again, that goes into who has money to do research, you know, um, what what research are people interested in, Um Things, for example, what we describe are fit for those people with, as you can hear, there's a lot of nuances, right? That's just not what makes research easy, right? What makes research easy is things that we can easily categorize, we can measure, and eating is not something we can easily measure. Eating yeah. experience, we can measure how much people eating, how many types of food. It's not easy to measure pleasure of food. It's not easy to measure what the quality of our uh, of a parent-child feeding relationship. So I would say, even though it's, you know, we hear that there's nothing from research right now, um, but I, I don't know if we can ever just rely on research to tell us how to work with um, these families. But I do believe there is a lot um, we can do to, to, to make people's lives a lot more, like to, to make people's life better, to make eating a lot better. We, this, the solution, the end point, I always say the resolution of RFID, it's not necessarily everybody needs to eat in a specific way. And I think that's a big misconception. It's we think the treatment is to make everyone eat like a balanced plate or food pyramid or whatever guidelines we have for our country. We thought this is um, the pedestal. This is what we all have to get to. But I do not believe uh uh, that we all have to be that way because then we are all the same. It's cookie cutter and then life is boring. We're not all meant to be the same. So we can all get to a different way of eating that works for each of us individual. And I think that's why it seems controversial that we're still talking about treatment because sometimes we're looking at one endpoint. So then talk to me about how you work with clients that have ARFID, both right. the child and maybe an adult's. And then I'd love for you to then tell me how we incorporate health at every size and that weight inclusive intuitive eating lens. Yeah. Um, for our fit, how, how I always go in and start with um, a lens of understanding what's happening with this person or family, really understanding their eating process. So in my assessment, it's really about weaving a story. Help me understand. So um, uh, for like, let's say children, quite often we go back to, what was the pregnancy like? What was um, feeling like as a child? And then getting the story 
of their experience, when did eating get difficult, what understanding what are those um, factors um, that interplay into their eating, whether it's medical uh, or um, a social situation, like we talk about immigration uh, or stressors, let's say going to school, when we start going to school, does happen, you know, really looking at um, an, um, of that big picture and considering different um, diagnosis, um, developmental um, diagnosis, as well as medical and all kind of things. And then also looking at the relationship, how is this child supported in their eating journey? And, and really, the, my, my purpose is putting the story back together to understand when and why is eating so difficult and, and what can we do? And so that's, so that's a process of peeling, peeling back the layers. And after we peel those layers, then we usually start to see the story. And then when we get the story, right, this is challenging because it could be that, um, Actually, I find certain textures very difficult. Um, and But then because the texture becomes difficult, eating has become really stressful. So if that's the case, we have to work with the stress first. We need to remove the stress. Maybe we need to work on the feeding relationship. Maybe we need to work with everyone's stress at the table first. So we peel the layer, go back, step back, um, kind of step by step, and then the way I describe is then if we can remove some of the barriers, if there is a natural process of how eating milestones develop, we remove those barriers, whatever it is. So it might be hard for me to tell you exactly what we do, but that's where what my, my thinking is always that way. And then go back to think, okay, now we, we know what are these barriers. We address these barriers. And then how do we put the um, pieces back, scaffold those pieces back. Okay, how can we support you to eat regularly? How do we support you to get enough nutrition? We may not think about variety initially. Maybe maybe we just think about how can we make um, make sure that you have enough nutrition. For some people, it's they eat enough, but social situations very difficult. So how do we support the social situations? Um, sometimes we work with the family. Sometimes we work outside of the family. So if eating is mostly stressful at school, we might be doing advocacy with school we may be working with lunch supervisors to look at accommodations do we need headphones if it's the noise is the problem um if it is about um bringing food to school because um foods that are um that we can easily let let's say go into a thermos um or that, that we pack lunch change taste and texture really quickly so maybe these children uh, we need to work with parents to give them permission because sometimes people have um, feelings about packaged food. Maybe these children need very consistent texture at lunchtime. So we can, we need to work with uh, uh, pre-packaged foods because they always come off the package the same way. So, so we're finding those pieces and help them with um, solution. So Grace, what I actually heard in your treatment process is that number one, you try to understand the person you're, you're doing an assessment and you're looking at their history. You're looking at what's going on in their lives that led them to where they are. And then you're also looking within that to what, what their support is and what is supporting their feeding transition. And then you mentioned that then you do this sort of peeling the layers, which then reveals what the story is. Then you have this story, and so then you can take the main points from that individual story that are revealed and in the assessment, and then you start putting in things that adequately help the person with their eating patterns all over again. 
Yes, it's almost then that's from that on, we then we go back, hopefully go back to what I call like kind of a normal trajectory. The, their, the trajectory, the developmental trajectory they're meant to have. It's almost like at one point they had a little detour. Let's help them to, to find that. Mm-hmm. And for adults, so that's for children. For adults, it's slightly different. I would say the process is still similar where we're trying to get the story and try to um, understand their situation. But what's different and unique is these are adults who have lived a long good lives. For some people, it's they've been happy with you know the way they're eating. So quite often, I really want to understand what is not working for them. So I really try to tease up the piece, pieces what is not working for them. Sometimes it's because of that it's related to medical conditions that they do want to eat differently. Um, sometimes it's for social reasons, like I shared earlier. Sometimes men um, come to seek help mostly because there is a need. For example. Um, uh, quite often actually, because they find it hard to, how do I eat with my wife? You know, um, I've had a couple of people after they moved in or married, after they get into a serious relationship, that's when um, the um, um, the challenges come up. So they want some help. So sometimes that could be helping them to eat differently. Sometimes it's actually helping the family to figure out or the, the couple to figure out how do we do meal planning? How do the two of us who have very different food and nutrition needs share meals together so that we feel like we're still eating a meal, but we accommodate um, different needs. Um, sometimes it's helping people to get through a work day. You know, I need to pack lunch to work or I need to be able to go to work social. I have a client who uh, who work in um, a job that requires her to be eating with clients all the time. So how do we navigate those situations? So it's more unique because um, it's very important that um, these adults, many of them have been through a life of eating been shamed and has been told that they're wrong and that they don't really feel like they they are an efficacious person that they can direct their eating. So I find I put a lot of effort in actually affirming them the way that you've evolved with your eating have been um, helpful in some sort of way, have been a coping in some sort of way. It's no longer working. Let's help you to find what works for you, but you have a lot to contribute. We don't want to shame you for the way you eat. There is, there have been a purpose and then helping them again, wanting to just to make their lives better, to improve their quality of life, which can include nutrition. That is phenomenal. That is really good. In the interest of time, I, I want to just touch quickly about what you would say for people that know that someone has ARFID or that are dealing with kids that might have this condition, or maybe as an adult, what would be some takeaways that you would want to leave with them? That's a good question. Um, I would say the key thing is um, what I just talked about is to shame. It's know that this is not something shameful. These Your way of eating, it's not something to feel ashamed. I, I, I don't want to minimize that experience. If you do feel that that shameful, I don't want to take away and say that you should not. But however, I do want to say that um, there is likely a reason or reasons that contribute to your eating to be this way. So um, to know that there is, there's a reason and there is a way to make lives better. If it's not, um, 
if eating is stressful right now, if it's in any way disruptive in your life, there are your child's life, we can find ways to make it better. But and then the solution, like as I have already said earlier, it doesn't mean that we all have to eat the same plate, we can all have a different plate. And, and you and your child um, could, you know, could be healthy and happy. That's great. I'm thank you so much, Grace. All right. I'm going to transition here and ask you some fun stuff. Great. <laughs> tell me, <laughs> tell me what's one thing that, cause you've been interviewed on podcasts before, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think is one question that you don't get asked that you would like to get asked? Oh, that's a really hard one. You didn't prepare me for this. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, I don't, no, I don't. You know what? Actually, I would say, David, you've hit on a really important one. I have no one has ever actually interviewed me about immigration. So mm-hmm. I've, I've had the lived experience of immigration and I do work with immigration, like immigrants families. Yeah, so me I too. Me too. Covered that today. I always say immig- immigrants just get grouped with refugees or marginalized com- communities that is a very unique piece of, uh, that, um, which I won't get into because we don't have time because even different times of uh, people immigrate from one place to another at different times could have a unique and different experience. Yeah. So much. Yeah. And we group countries together. We think about, um, let's say Latin, you know, Latinx communities yeah. or Asian mm-hmm. communities, but don't, don't recognize that even within that there's a lot of, um, unique differences. So, um, I think that's one that I don't get, um, asked a lot, um, but you actually, we had a chance to talk about it. Today. Yeah, yeah. Believe me, I would have loved to have gone further with that one, but I do want to keep to the time, right? All right. So I'll ask you another fun question or a different question. And that is what, if you were stranded on a desert Island, what would be the food that you would have to have? This is your last meal. You would have to have this food and it could be any food that you wanted. Soup, definitely soup. soup. Okay. And, I, I am a soup person, but I live somewhere actually, I, I mean, not everywhere in Canada is cold, but I do live somewhere that yeah. is that is winter for half of the year. So soup <laughs> is my comfort food. Um, but actually, soup has been my comfort food all my life. So definitely soup. Okay. Would would you have it at a desert island as well since it's hot there? That's true. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a cold soup. Cold yes, soup. Maybe a cold soup. That's a good one. Yeah, I like that. Okay. <laughs> Grace, where can uh, people find you? Um, you will find me actually, um, I have a very inactive um, Facebook page, so you can still <laughs> find me there. Um, I have, I had, I had to take a break um, from social me? media. Food. Yeah through all this past couple of years for just um, my yes. challenges. So, yes. so I am not active, but that's where you can find me. Okay. <laughs> that's perfect. Excellent, Grace. I'll make sure to put that in my show notes as well. So Grace, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was great information. I, I have so many more questions too, because I can see there's a lot of little nuances that I'd love to touch on. So maybe we can chat another time. What would you think? Definitely. It was a pleasure speaking with you, David. Okay, great. Thank you, Grace. Have a wonderful day. You too. All right. Great topic there. I'm so glad that you were able to listen in today on us talking about RFID. Thank you very much, Grace Wong, for such great information and all your expertise and knowledge. I want to say thank you to you for listening in. I greatly appreciate you, and I would greatly appreciate if you get a moment, leave us a review on Apple Podcast or iTunes. And uh, just so you know, those reviews really help us get these, this show out to more people. 
Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us, feel free. Visit our website at orozconutrition.com. You can click on the Contact Us. You could also make a fifteen a free 15-minute appointment to discuss our approach and see if we would be a good fit for you. But remember, your insurance probably covers your visits. I want to also say that coming up, we will have some great conversations about the four C's of the book. And in the next few weeks, we'll also have another Friday Foodcast coming your way where we review some research and we look at some more in-depth information about nutrition. So I'm excited to hear from all of you, from anyone. (laughs) But I just wanted to remind you, you know, this is really important. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please remember, hit that subscribe button so you get these episodes downloaded directly to your device. Okay, folks, remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body and nourish your soul. Until next time. Ciao.